Chapter 88 The Baron Hunt, Chevalier Ramsay, and numerous others who founded the grades in these rites worked under instructions from the general of the Jesuits. Templarism is Jesuitism. Letter to Madame Blavatsky from Charles Southern, 32nd degree A and PR, 94th degree Memphis, Knight of the Rosy Cross, Knight Kadosh, Mark Mason, 104th England, etc., Initiate of the English Brotherhood of the Rosicrucians and other secret societies, January 11, 1877, from Isis Unveiled, 1877, Volume 2, page 390. We had run into them too often from the time of the first Rosicrucian manifestos on. As early as 1620 in Germany, the Rosa Jesuitica appears, reminding us that the symbolism of the rose was Catholic and Marian before it was Rosicrucian, and the hint is made that the two orders are in league, that Rosicrucianism is only a reformulation of the Jesuit mystique for consumption in Reformation Germany. I remembered what Salon had said about Father Kircher's rancorous attack on the Rosicrucians, right in the middle of his discourse on the depths of the terraqueous globe. Father Kircher, I said, is a central character in this story. Why would this man, who so often showed a gift for observation and a taste for experiment, drown these few good ideas in thousands of pages overflowing with incredible hypotheses? He was in correspondence with the best English scientists. Each of his books deals with typical Rosicrucian subjects, ostensibly to contest them, actually to espouse them, offering his own counter-reformation version. In the first edition of the Fama, Herr Haselmeyer, condemned to the galleys by the Jesuits because of his reforming ideas, hastens to say that the Rosicrucians are the true Jesuits. Very well. Kircher writes his thirty-odd volumes to argue that the Jesuits are the true Rosicrucians. The Jesuits are trying to get their hands on the plan. Kircher wants to study those pendulums himself, and he does, in his own way. He invents a planetary clock that will give the exact time in all the headquarters of the Society of Jesus scattered throughout the world. But how did the Jesuits know of the plan when the Templars let themselves be killed rather than reveal it? Diotalevi asked. It was no good answering that the Jesuits always know everything. We needed a more seductive explanation. We quickly found one. Guillaume Postel again, leafing through the history of the Jesuits by Cretino Jolie, and how we chuckled over that unfortunate name. We learned that in 1554 Postel, in a fit of mystical fervor and thirst for spiritual regeneration, joined Ignatius Loyola in Rome. Ignatius welcomed him with open arms, but Postel was unable to part with his manias, his cabalism, his ecumenicalism, and the Jesuits couldn't accept these things, especially one mania that Postel absolutely refused to abandon, the idea that the king of the world was the king of France. Ignatius may have been a saint, but he was also Spanish. So at last a rupture came about. Postel left the Jesuits, or the Jesuits kicked him out. But since he had been a Jesuit, even if only briefly, he had sworn obedience perinde ac cadaver to Saint Ignatius, and therefore must have revealed to him his mission. Dear Ignatius, he must have said, in receiving me you receive also the secret of the Templar plan, whose unworthy representative I am in France, and indeed, while we are all awaiting the third centenary meeting in 1584, we might as well await it ad maiorum dei gloriam. So the Jesuits, thanks to Postel's moment of weakness, come to know the secret of the Templars. This knowledge must be exploited. St. Ignatius goes to his eternal reward, but his successors remain watchful. They keep an eye on Postel. They want to know whom he will meet in that fateful year, 1584. But alas, Postel dies before then. Nor is it any help that 
As one of our sources tells us, an unknown Jesuit is present at his deathbed. The Jesuits do not learn who his successor is. I'm sorry, Kasabin, Belbo said, but something here doesn't add up. If what you say is true, the Jesuits couldn't know that the meeting failed to come off in 1584. Don't forget that the Jesuits, Diotalevi remarked, were men of iron, not easily fooled. Ah, as for that, Belbo said, a Jesuit could eat two Templars for breakfast and another two for dinner. They also were disbanded, and more than once, and all the governments of Europe lent a hand, but they're still here. We had to put ourselves in a Jesuit's shoes. What would a Jesuit do if Postel slipped from his grasp? I had an idea immediately, but it was so diabolical that not even our diabolicals, I thought, would swallow it. The Rosicrucians were an invention of the Jesuits. After Postel's death, I argued, the Jesuits, clever as they are, mathematically foresee the confusion of the calendars and decide to take the initiative. They set up this Rosicrucian red herring, calculating exactly what will happen. Among all the fanatics who swallow the bait, someone from one of the genuine groups, caught off guard, will come forward. Imagine the fury of Bacon. Flood, you idiot! Couldn't you have kept your mouth shut? But, my lord, they seem to be with us. Fool! Weren't you taught never to trust papists? They should have burned you, not that poor wretch from Nola. But in that case, Belbo said, when the Rosicrucians moved to France, why do the Jesuits, or those polemicists in their hire, attack the newcomers as heretics possessed by devils? Surely you don't expect the Jesuits to work in a straightforward way? What sort of Jesuits would they be then? We quarreled at length over my proposal and finally decided, unanimously, that the original hypothesis was better. The Rosicrucians were the bait cast for the French by the Baconians and the Germans, but the Jesuits, as soon as the manifestos appeared, caught on, and they immediately joined in the game to muddy the waters. Obviously, the Jesuits' aim was to prevent the English and German groups from meeting with the French, and to that end any trick would do, no matter how dirty. Meanwhile they recorded events, gathered information, and put it all... Where? In a bulafia, Belbo joked. But Diotalevi, who had been gathering information himself, said it was no joke. Surely the Jesuits were constructing an immense, tremendously powerful computer that would draw a conclusion from this patiently accumulated age-old brew of truth and falsehood. The Jesuits, Diotalevi said, understood what neither the poor old Templars of Provan nor the Baconian camp had yet realized, namely, that the reconstruction of the map could be accomplished by Ars Combinatoria. In other words, with a method that foreshadowed our modern electronic brains. The Jesuits were the first to invent a bulafia. Father Kircher reread all the treatises on the combinatorial art from Lulusan, and you see what he published in his Ars Magna Sciendi. It looks like a crochet pattern to me, Belbo said. No, gentlemen, these are all the possible combinations. Factor analysis, that of the Sefer Yasira. Calculation of permutations, the very essence of the Tamura. This was certainly so. It was one thing to conceive Flood's vague project of identifying the map by beginning with a polar projection. It was quite another to figure out how many trials would be required in order to arrive at the correct solution. And again, it was one thing to create an abstract model of all the possible combinations, and another to invent a machine able to carry them out. So both Kircher and his disciple Schott built mechanical devices, mechanisms with perforated cards, computers antiliterum, binary calculators, Kabbalah applied to modern technology, IBM, Jesus Babbage Mundi, Jesum Binarium Magnificamur, AMDG, Ad Maiorum Dei Gloriam, 
not on your life. Ars Magna Digitale Gaudium. IHS, Jesus Hardware and Software.